One of the top challenges for people seeking employment and education is access to reliable transportation. That's why Well-Built Bikes refurbishes donated bicycles and provides them to struggling community members. If you have an old or unused bike that you can donate to their cause, it could provide mobility and independence to someone who can't afford a car or a brand new bike of their own. Visit BikeShopTampa.com to learn more, or swing by the Well-Built Bike store in the University Mall on Fowler Avenue. Welcome once again to another Work Ethic Podcast, and I'm really excited. We have a return guest today, David Dennis, who actually was on uh, almost exactly three years ago. I was baffled to see how long it's been, David, but I look back, it was episode 23. For those of you that haven't listened, um, it's actually so it's actually technically the second most popular episode uh, that, that has been on the show entirely. Um, you were, you were, uh, you were a, uh, popular guest, David. And, uh, and actually the only one that is eh, just a little bit more than you is my wife, who is also <laughs> episode one, which episode ones are almost always the top listen to. Cause that's people like, Oh, let's start the podcast at the beginning. Um, so that one is number one. And she's going to be super happy to hear that she's, she's in the lead over David Dennis, but, uh, David, um, since we last spoke, uh, you've published a book that I'm really excited to get into. And um, and but for the sake of everyone listening, maybe they didn't hear the first episode. Um, I'm gonna just throw you the ball to kind of just give a sketch of yourself, kind of who you are, what you do, and uh, we'll just kind of roll from there. Great to be with you, John. I'm I'm uh, blown away by the fact that uh, you have listeners that have listened to that podcast enough to put me just under your bride. <laughs> it's um, incredible that's, right that's uh rare air and and i gotta tell you i actually i i finished that podcast with you and i i told my kids about it they said they, they called me and they said dad you realize how long you you talked on that podcast and i said well i really don't i know it went on a long time he said well that's longer than most podcasts Pro probably nobody's ever going to listen to that yeah and so it yeah. really kind of blows my mind that uh and so i want to say thank you to people who took time to listen to that podcast i kind of forgot i was on it it was the first podcast i'd ever done mm. and you and i just got lost in conversation that's it and uh it was it was a great conversation and and uh so anyway thanks for sharing that thank you for people that took time to listen hope there was a nugget or two of uh encouragement in there or Something oh, it was, it was so good. It was, I mean, and I remember even personally, like I went back and listened several times. Cause I was like, I mean, you, 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 even in the middle, you remember, you're like, I personally want to challenge you on some things. And I was like, oh, I got to go back and <laughs> go back and deal with this man. But yeah, I, uh, I listened to it a lot myself. It was a really great episode. I really encourage everyone to go back. We may touch on some things from it today. Uh, but, but, um, but yeah, anyway, man, we're, we're, uh, turns out because i get that all the time too by the way people are like these are way too long and it's like well don't listen to it then like <laughs> or listen to part of it like like at some level i'm scratching my own itch like i want to have these conversations but also like there's a real body of work being developed here over all these conversations and then oh by the way it turns out a lot of people are down for a two-hour conversation that want to kind of really get it's a great like after listening to that they're like oh i have a feel for this guy like mm. i know his story i know who he is and so Hmm. Yeah, that's what we do. Maybe maybe someone can help me make clips of it along the way. But yeah, they're 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 long. 
And the one with you, I think, was particularly long. I actually think that's yeah. true. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was uh, it was great, and I appreciate. It. I'm honored that you asked me to come back. It's hard to believe it's been three years. It's, I know. You know, it's two year pandemic almost just kind of stopped the universe, didn't it? And, and now true. we resume. So it, it doesn't seem like it's been three years ago. No, it really doesn't. It feels like yesterday. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad to to be back with you. I'm glad to have you back. Um, well, so do a do a quick sketch of kind of your just your the the, the top line bio stuff. Like here's, okay. here's who David Dennis is, kind of yeah. like for those that haven't made that first episode, or uh yeah, give give us a sketch of who we're talking to. So most importantly, I'm grandfather to Emmy Kate and Paisley May. Uh, you'll probably never get a chance to meet them, but that's my five-year-old and three-year-old granddaughters who live in Oklahoma. And uh, so that's that's number one. Uh, I, I have the the honor of uh, being married to my, my best friend and best human being I've ever met in my life, uh, my wife, Becky, for 35 years. And uh, we have five children uh, that I feel honored to be their father. And so those are the most important things about me. As uh, far as the, the work I do, I, I, I have the treat of getting to serve uh, in a nonprofit organization headquartered in Clearwater uh, that's uh, called Eckerd Connects. Our website is Eckerd, E-C-K-E-R-D.org, founded by Jack and Ruth Eckerd. Uh, as many people in this area know, a drugstore magnate, mm-hmm. yep. um, very generous ph- philanthropist in the Tampa Bay area. Uh, Circa Eckerd College, uh, Ruth Eckerd Hall Performing Arts Studio. This this nonprofit he started 54 years ago, uh, with the vision of ensuring every child has an opportunity to succeed. And uh, many people have, have read the tragic stories of the 80 unmarked graves on the campus of Dozier School for Boys in North Florida, uh, a program where back in those days in the 60s and before young men deemed quote unquote incorrigible, uh, you know got shipped off there and many of them just kind of aged out, but there was a lot of abuse that happened there back in those days in the sixties. It was rumor uh, that kids weren't being taken great care of. Mr. And Mrs. Ecker decided, Hey, there's gotta be a better way to pro-socially non-punitive, you know, strength-based approach to working with young people and uh, try to level the playing ground, if you will, and create an opportunity for young people that would kind of in the disenfranchised, um, kind of challenged uh, fringes of our society aren't getting that opportunity. So it started as outdoor therapeutic camping program. We've evolved over the years now. The majority of what we do is workforce development, job core. Um, we still do some work in child welfare and juvenile justice. But what we concluded about 10 years ago was this pipeline to prison that you see in our society, uh, children in the child welfare system slash foster care system to the tune of about 450,000 at any given time about half of them end up in some way or another uh, getting touched by the juvenile justice system when they're two teenagers. Uh, and then the, the, the juvenile justice system, about 52% of those, the last time I checked, or 52% of new incoming inmates in the adult prison system have already been touched by the juvenile justice system. So you've got the kids in child welfare, many of them as teens duly involved in juvenile justice. You've got these kids in the juvenile justice system uh, you know, many of them ending up in the adult prison system. Altogether, those three systems, uh, about $200 billion a year. And so we just concluded at, together as a team one day that it's not that we didn't intellectually, cognitively know 
that was going on. And of course, then that's not calculating those that are homeless or in drug treatment centers or, or mm -hmm. in cemeteries. But what we realize is that probably close to 90% of those, whether it's child welfare, juvenile justice or prison system come from the same place and it's poverty. Yep. So we decided uh, as an organization to what we call move upstream and uh, realize that poverty's flood of misery is not gonna be stopped by more sandbags of social services programs or prisons. And we decided we wanted to focus on building a dam upstream. And we believe the most important social service that you can provide a young person is a job uh, and get them an opportunity to get into the economy, uh, discover their God-given gifts and talents and get a vision for their life and be productive citizens. And so that really shifted our focus about 10 years ago. And that's, that's really 90% of what we do now. We're in 20 states in the District of Columbia. Uh, we have about 3,000 employees, uh, about 200 million annual revenue in 20 states in the District of Columbia. Like I said, we serve about 40,000 clients a year. And it's very, very exciting uh, for me. Um, it touches really closely to my own personal story and kind of my reasons for the origins of my life getting off to such a, a tough challenge. Man, I'm, uh, I'm really grateful you kind of ran through all this again. And it's, it's, uh, it's really, um, it's, I don't know, just such a, such an important work. Thank you for all that your org is doing, but you know, the scope of, I mean, you know, I know you guys locally. Right. And so sometimes it's like, forget about like, Oh yeah, we're in 20 States. Like this is, this is happening all over the place. Um, I know, uh, by the way, can you just like to double click on a piece of that story you just told of the work, like the actual kind of job creation um, or helping young people get jobs and placement? Like, can you sketch out a couple of the things that are going on throughout the country, like like a little more in the weeds of some of those yeah. Um, programs or or yeah, just paint the picture a little bit? Yeah. So it's really the workforce development that we do is really divided into kind of two sectors. One is what I would call community-based workforce development. So the federal government provides funding through, uh, it's called, we owe it, it's the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act. And those federal dollars slow down and they go to what's called workforce development boards in communities all over the United States. Uh, many of those workforce boards uh, provide their own job core, uh, not job core, workforce development services in the community. And then many others, uh, subcontract that work out to private providers like like Eckerd and others, many others. Okay. Uh, the other part of that is is what I call a, a campus-based or site-based operation, which is known as Job Corps. It's been around since the 60s. And it's, uh, look, for lack of better words, if you walked onto a Job Corps campus, it would look like a, a small community college. And, okay. and it's dorms, gym, uh, you know, cafeteria, uh, classrooms, uh, counseling services, health services, Lots of sites for actual job skills are being developed. Certifications are being earned. Then apprenticeships are, are being uh, sought out for these young people. And then actual employment post-apprenticeship. Uh, and then we track them for a year following to make sure they're not only employed, but in a career track that's got upward mobility, increase in pay over that next year, and a track to actually a career, not just a job. That's incredible. Yeah, it's 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 so energizing. I. I've spent my entire career uh, working with, you know, what I, I, I don't like the word really, but we're all at risk, right? Right. But, but populations that are really in challenged situations. Uh, and, and, you know, one of the things that happened for me, John, is, is um, you know, I, I was removed from my own home by Child Protective Services as a kid. And, and 
you know, went into foster care, got the second chance, reunited with my sister. And we both got removed from our foster homes and into a long-term placement where a family raised us. And, and so, you know, when I got in college and, you know, really wanted to get back, I had a real heart for young people going through what I'd gone through. I started mentoring through a big brother, big sister program. I was a foster parent myself when I was single by the time I was 21. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was really all I cared about. I, I barely made it through college because I, my passion was really working with these young people. But I got into it because I identified with their pain. And so that always felt noble and honorable doing that work. It ended up leading me to getting my counseling degree, uh, graduate program, and counseling kids directly for years and a lot of private practice counseling on, on the side. And then I ended up getting into leadership roles. It, you know, evolved into me coming here to Eckerd 16 years ago. Uh, but one of the things that hit me, uh, you know, about that same time our organization shifted to focus more upstream on workforce development and job corps was not just me, but a lot of people get involved with, with the, these young people. Um, we don't mean to, but we identify with the pain they're going through, and it feels really honorable to go out and kind of throw those sandbags that I mentioned earlier, you know, and kind of triage it, triage in the tragedy that they are in and the crisis. But what hit me was, you know, I'm relating to these kids like they're a problem to be solved instead of a potential to be realized. And there's it's a completely different paradigm shift. You know, uh, I mean, I I was I was sincere in in relating to these kids as you know, I want to attend to their pain. I want to be supportive. I know the anxiety they're feeling. I've been through it. I know how scared they are. I know how traumatized they are. I've lived it. So I, I want to be supportive of them. So I get a degree in counseling. I want to counsel them. I want to encourage them. So you end up spending all your time talking to them about what? Their problems, their pain, their past sucky life. Instead of saying, hey, John, yeah, I know that's been sucky. Can we let's hit pause for a minute? What do you think you want to do at the restaurant? What, what do you think you want to accomplish? What, what's your purpose in life? Well, many kids that are in that place, it freaks them out. They've never had anybody ask them that question. So they've never even felt validated by that question that well god this this guy's asking me what i want to become someday he must think i can become something so it, when i saw kids begin to get asked that question and say hey the rest of your life is canvas that hadn't been painted on you're you're yes you do have a past and it's not a great one it's frustrating maybe that's your past yeah how about how about your future how about a vision for your life and just relating to these young people like that is such a game changer and I could tell our staff were invigorated by it. Uh, it was it was powerful, uh, and so it was almost like a rebirthing of me and my career. I I I was like, it was just a complete game changer. And it's not mm-hmm. that I don't care about kids in foster care. It's not that I don't care about kids in the juvenile justice system. We still do that work yep. in in some states. But once we realized, like in my own case, um. What got me into that, you know, my, my mom, after my, our dad died, she cratered under the, she, she got depressed. She, she, it was her second husband, actually, that she lost tragically, both by pretty tragic means. She succumbed to alcoholism that she was using to cope with the, what she was going through, a young yeah. woman. But when I dug deeper into it and I started thinking about her life, no high school education, yeah. no college education, no job skills training, no employment history, had her first child at the age of 15, you know. And so when all the tragedies began to happen, she had no support network. She followed my dad around a construction, um, you know, job to job to job, living in motels. We lived in motels my first three years of my life. I mean, so she had no support network. She had no education, she had no way of getting a job. And, you know, 
she panicked. And so when I look at these families and I start looking at their files and their social histories of these kids in the foster care system, for example, I'm like, my gosh, that was my mom. And, yeah. and my mom's dad walked out one day in extreme poverty, panicked himself, couldn't provide for five kids, walked out one day. They just never came home. They never saw him again. His kids and his wife. His wife, my, my mom's mom, my mom's mom, my grandmother got ill not too long after that, passed away. And so my mom and her siblings and the neighbors kind of raised themselves. So for me, when I look back at it, I'm like, wow, that that's that's the social history chart of most of the kids I've worked with. Yep. So so why don't we go back and try to find out how what if somebody would have engaged my mom sooner? What if she could have discovered what her gifts and talents were and got the support network, got a job, got a mentor? And so that was the other thing that really uh, changed my thinking about this. And I think our society needs to change its thinking. I think we spend way too much money triaging uh, tragedy uh, and and kind of putting a Band-Aid on cancer, if you will. I don't yep. mean to be crude about it. And I don't mean to minimize how important work is for hurting kids. But if, if we're really serious about this, I've worked with too many kids in the foster care system whose mom and grandmother yeah. were in the foster care That's system. Right. That's right. You've got a problem. With generationally. Yes. Yeah. And in prison too, I've, I've seen, I used to counsel inmates and I've seen, I've seen situations where an inmate's in prison where their father is right. in prison. So we got a problem when we have generations flowing through our social service system. We're, we got to do something different. No, that we absolutely do. And, um, you know, it's interesting as you paint that kind of upstream picture. And like when you use the term, like one of the one of the things that these stories have in common is poverty. And one of the ways that I personally frame poverty, like even in our own work has been, I, I don't frame it as like uh, the absence of money, although that would be a form of poverty, but just like the absence of freedom. So I would say like the opposite of poverty is freedom. And the reason I like to frame it that way is that, you know, it's like, well, if I don't have money, I can't choose what I'm going to buy or where I'm going to go. That is a form of that. But same with like addiction. And as you like even paint the picture of your mom, like the no education, the no support system, the no, you know, say no transportation, but like every version of lack of access and every version of lack of freedom is let's say another iteration of something like poverty, which is, I would say that the enemy of, or the opposite of human freedom. And, and what with freedom comes what like responsibility, which is actually an interesting like version of what even vocational rehab or workforce development. It's like giving, giving people jobs or freedom or access is a way to give them agency and therefore responsibility. And like that, it, it like seems like this counter kind of position to that. And, and, but kind of back to this, like what they have in, in common is poverty. And I think at some level, like that is, that is like even maybe more true than immediately obvious where it isn't just material poverty, but like in every way, um, people get kind of hemmed in on these things with poverty and like, and then we can point at those and wag our fingers and be like, but when you see it just like generation after generation, you realize, man, like from the beginning, these folks didn't have an on-ramp. They didn't have this chance. They didn't have the freedom to even take responsibility. Right. And so like the, the creation of those on-ramps and building those kind of access points, I think is, I mean, fundamentally important and um, just really grateful for the way that you guys are, are engaging in, in kind of creating those opportunities. The other, the other thing I would add to what you said, John, I, I, and I totally agree with you. Yep. Uh, it is, you know, poverty isn't just a monetary issue. That's a very great point, very important point. Um, 
the other thing I would add to freedom, I think I would say is, is it's uh, the poverty of a lack of purpose. And, yeah. um, you know, if you look yeah. at Maslow's hierarchy, you know, I, I, I don't, I can't remember the exact levels, but yep. pretty much, pretty much it's like, okay, uh, you know, my life is threatened at this moment. Uh, so far, physiologically, I may be hungry. Uh, right now, the higher need is to save my life. So I'm running from, you know, whatever's threatening my life. Okay, now I'm safe from whatever's threatening yep. my life. And I'm like, I realize, okay, well, I'm, I'm hungry. So then you eat uh, because your hunger takes priority over needing shelter. Okay, now I'm, I'm, I'm not safe and I've eaten. I probably should get a roof over my head. Yep. And eventually you get to, you know, self-actualization, socialization. Yep. I'm lonely. But you're not feeling lonely when you're, feeling like your your life's at risk but but in poverty you know it's once you um are out of poverty you know you can begin to think about because when you're in poverty your life is threatened that's right that's and right so, so now i'm like okay uh i'm free to now think about wow what is my purpose you know what that's right what 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 do i want my life to count for what what do i want to accomplish in life what do i uh what's what's my highest value when you're when you're in poverty, you don't get to choose what your highest value is. Your highest value is to survive. Yep. And what, what that creates for people is a survival mindset, which is part of what I talk about in my book. And nothing wrong with surviving. We all do need to survive. But if that's as far as you go, it's a very limited life. And like you just pointed out, not much freedom there. Well, and so I think this is a great way to transition to like some of this work you've been doing. And I want you to kind of speak to your, like introduce your kind of book to everybody, but like that, what you just said with the Maslow's hierarchy, it's actually really interesting because uh, the, you're right at the base of that is just like, it's basic survival, the safety, then family. And you work your way up to like self-actualization and purpose. But, and what's always blown me away is then there's like this, I don't know, Take like someone like a St. Francis or a Gandhi, where these are dudes that like have embraced what, you know, looks like a like material poverty, like Gandhi's possessions at the time of his death are like five items. I have a photo of him in his autobiography back here. Like there's very little that he had. And we would look at that and be like, oh, it's like poverty. Like it's like the amount of belongings a lot of my friends on the street have, you know, but it's completely different because it's like this version of liberation yes. where it's like, I'm so... I'm so locked in on calling and purpose yep. that now what's interesting is it inverts your ability. Like this is where you see, like, you know, I always think of that, um, that monk that self emulated in protest, right. That, but the, but the, like, but like people, you actually have characters that are so that are, that found something to die for mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, MLK, Dietrich Jesus. Bonhoeffer, Jesus, Jesus. Yep. These are people that go, there's something so great and so yeah. important that I can walk into a fire. I can go without food. I can lose my housing. I can actually sacrifice the bottom of the hierarchy. And the most heroic lives are people that don't seem to care about the hierarchy anymore. And it's, it, and I think it's to the point of like, because something is so important and so great. And I, and I yeah. feel like that's a decent transition into maybe letting you kind of like introduce some of this work that you've been developing. So I know since we last spoke, you published this book. Yeah. Um, you want to, you want to kind of introduce us to it a little bit. Happy to happy to. Um, yeah. You know, John, this book, uh, the title of it is gameness uh, land on your feet, not on your feelings. I've showed this by the way, to several people and that subtitle 
is what literally every single person is like, oh, I like that. <laughs> you know, and, and at the top of the book, the banner is, you know, find, find advantages in your adversity. Yep. And so few people, you know, anywhere can't relate to, yeah, that's probably pretty important, you know. Uh, the word gameness, though, I love because it's uh, you. I, I don't think you'll find another book that's been published um, anywhere in time uh, with that title. And and I did that on purpose. I wanted a title that would make people stop and say, "What the heck is gameness?" Uh, because I think it's that important. Uh, the word gameness is a word that uh, is an old word, not one we use often, but it. It's got so much meaning to it. And so the, there's a lot of definitions for gameness. You can look them up yourself. I, I put them in the book. But the one, my favorite, is, is one that uh, really lays out kind of four attributes of defining gameness. And it's resoluteness to purpose, never quit mindset, a fighting spirit, and the will required to act beyond your feelings. And, you know, when I was working on thinking about this book, uh, I've always loved that word, by the way. Um, it, it was just always such a powerful underused yeah. word and I wanted to reintroduce it, but I, I, I decided that when I started writing this book, it was a book for my kids. I never got to have that uh, conversation with my biological father because I lost him when I was so young. I never got to have any of those talks, you know, mm. what, what's your advice and some of his old stories, life lessons yeah, learned, right. you know, you know, things that a son just kind of like. I, it was just always a hole in me. I never, I could never feel that. I never will. And so I, I just told my kids, our, our five children, I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to write something and I'm going to leave it behind for you all. It's going to be that conversation I never got to have with my dad. And so it's not going to be, you know, my life story. It's going to be a book with a lot of stories in it, but it's going to be stories and reflections. Um, some of them personal. I share a little bit about, about my personal journey, but yep. but uh, it's certainly not a book about me. But I wanted to leave behind with them a kind of a manual, if you will, that would would that it would be the stories and the truths and principles kind of laid out that, from my perspective, from my own life lessons learned, uh, from observing the lives of those that I most respect over the years, and from thousands of hours of counseling people as a licensed uh, professional counselor, licensed marriage family therapist, of observations of people's lives, uh, thousands of people that I've had an opportunity to lead in organizations where I've led. Um, kind of, if I boiled all of that down and said, you know, the best of the best advice that I could leave you would be these things that if I could boil it down to one word captured in definition, mm -hmm. those things, or how, how you can live your life to its fullest potential. That was the goal of the book, okay? Um, would be what? And I was looking at, I, I always loved that word, and I was reading the definition of gameness while I was writing on this book, and I read that definition. I thought, wow, that's the stuff I'm writing about. I mean, mm. those, those are the four areas that if I boiled everything down, it would be those things. Uh, we touched on one of them earlier, resoluteness to a purpose. Uh, mm -hmm. So... So that uh, that's one of them, but uh, those those four areas. So I just I wrote those, and the kids started prompting me, Dad. You know, you should like share this with more than just us. This is pretty cool. Uh, you should write a book. And so, frankly, I've always been one, John, that always thought there was there's too many books out there. And anybody says write a book, all I can think of is the the pile of uh, half off books in the bookstore when you walk in that nobody ever read, including me. Mm -hmm. And I just have always felt like books were kind of 
vanity publications. I, there's a few exceptions, obviously, you know, and I've, I read those books, but I certainly didn't see myself as the caliber of person that would, you know, certainly not write a story about myself. Mm. But I, I really came to be kind of convicted that, that, uh, all of these observations I've made through my own life experiences, I wanted to steward those for my kids. And after I was gone, I wanted to leave something behind for them so that after I'm gone, when, when times get tough, uh, or before times get tough, hopefully they pick that up and they can hear my voice and they can hear those lessons and they don't have to sit around and wonder, I wonder what dad would do. or I wonder what he'd say. And it was just a gift for them, but I decided to share it beyond that. And so a couple of months ago, this thing got kicked out and that's kind of how it happened. Man. So I, uh, I've been, I've been really excited about it. And you know, it's funny, the term and you're right. It isn't like a, a commonly used term. I, I would say that I was mostly familiar with the term and you, I actually used it quite a bit as well. Um, and it's funny cause it was, it was actually, if you, if I, I like recently was going back to some of the earliest podcasts uh, on the work ethic and it came up a lot more frequently, like it was something I was asking about. Um, and then I, you know, it's actually funny listening to some of the early episodes and realizing like what I haven't continued asking about over time that hasn't been like a part of the question, uh, but it really was around having game and, or being game. Mm-hmm. And, and I used that. Uh, so I was aware of that term and I honestly feel like I mostly heard it or even originally heard it in like a documentary about dogs, like, like people <laughs> that fought the people that yeah. fought animals yeah, yeah, and they would refer to them as game. Like this yeah. animal yep. is game. With- and then, yep. And then I, that really stuck out to me as something like some kind of a resilient tenacity <laughs> kind of hunger. And I like really resonated with me. And then I, and then, but you'll hear like, we still use like, he's game. She's game. Like I'm game. Like you guys want to go. I'm game. Like we use it that way, you know, a little bit like I'm game. Maybe, maybe in the, in the, in the game diet game version of the way we, we use it. Like I'm game to go or whatever. Um, but it's definitely something I've appreciated in people. And, and when I use it to say to like, like, like our, actually our board president, I've referred to that way. I've said like, she's game. And I don't think people understand what I mean, but I mean like, no, like literally if something happens in an alley and we're walking down the street, I picture her fighting. <laughs> like, I'm just like know, She's game for whatever. Well, let me, look, this is, this is funny that you said that John, because you and I have not had this conversation at all. And I think you'll be surprised at this. Turn the book over and hold up the back of the book. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so what do you see there on the back of the book? The, your pup. Yeah. And it's not just a pup. It's a game dog. It's a game dog. Yeah. And actually and, has and, a, is, is it, is it's it an a, American, it's an American, American pit, yeah, pit bull terrier. Yep. That's what and, I thought. And, and, and let me tell my, you why my dog is too. Yeah. Well, let me tell you why I put that picture back there. I, I put it back there and I, I mentioned inside the back cover, it says about the author, you know, he mm-hmm. enjoys uh, hanging out with his kids, working out in his gym and playing with his American pit bull terrier. Mm-hmm. And so I, I didn't mention it on the back, but I, on purpose, I put that on the outside of the back because I knew some people would, see that and go, ah, because you're exactly right. Yep. The the origin of this word really, and the reason I don't talk about it in the book is because there's such controversy around it. Yeah. I was nervous even to bring it up because I'm like, but let let me tell you what's interesting about this. I've had an American pit bull terrier for 35 years and these dogs back in the 1800s, when they came over with immigrants from Ireland and Spain and other places, 
you know, back in those days, you didn't have uh, ADP. You know, people had their security system was their dog. You yeah. know, so your, your dog kept, you know, coyotes away, it kept bears away, it kept, uh, uh, un, un, you know, get people, robbers, burglars, people that did, had bad intentions. So your guard dog, uh, if it wasn't game, you were in trouble. Mm-hmm. Which meant, which meant your dog had to be willing to risk its life. So American pit bull terriers, uh, a lot of people don't know this. They used to be called back in those days nanny dogs. Yep. Because because they were the the people trusted them to babysit their kids when when they were in the field working or different things. And the dogs would literally give their life to protect their family. And their stories actually I've read about this. And so, um, and and it's interesting sure. where the word underdog came from. A lot of people don't realize this where the word underdog came from was back in those days when people would buy a dog to protect their family or to go with, to travel with them that were, you know, across to go West or whatever, and to guard their homes, it couldn't just be any dog because if it was a dog that would turn tail and run. And when things got tough or another animal was attacking them, the, what they would always want to know is how game is that dog. Yep. And what that, what that meant was the dog was, even when they were on their back in a more dominant, uh, animal uh was or a group of animals was attacking them they would keep fighting off their back mm-hmm. and so that that's what that's where the word underdog came from we use it in our society everywhere well wow the underdog won it's, mm-hmm. it's but but the word game meant exactly what that definition is that i read earlier yeah, resolute right. re- resolute fighting spirit never quit mindset and the will required to act against your feelings they were it wasn't that they weren't scared they just or in pain not, that's right or, or in pain so what happened is uh, you know it's like and the way i got attracted to these dogs john was i was working with at-risk kids as i mentioned i was working with kids that were in the juvenile justice system kids that were on the streets kids that had a bad name in most people's eyes and they were prejudged and uh they were deemed bad kids or incorrigible kids and i began to read these stories about these dogs that were getting a bad rap they were called bad dogs they were you know, well there are no bad dogs mm-hmm. there's only bad there's only bad owners yeah that's and right there's no and there's no bad kids there's only bad parents and so yeah. I, I i kind of fell in love with the dog because they're the most fiercely loyal loving affectionate unbelievably determined right. dog so so the 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 dog is is a metaphor for me of gameness i just didn't feel comfortable because of the controversy around the uh, dog to bring that out but it's my own little kind of private story, but you brought it up. So I have to, t- I had to talk about no, it. No, well, I'm so glad that I did because like that, that is like my, it's where for, for me as a vocab word, as a attribute, it is like, by which I mean, like, it would be good if you were a little like my pit bull, like, yep. th- you know what I mean? <laughs> like that would be kind of a good thing. Um, and, and it's just such an impressive uh, like, you, like when you see it, it's something to stand in awe of. It is. Um, now, yep. now as you, so I know you, you put in a ton of work on this, on this book. Uh, I, and there's, so you've got a handful of sections. You've kind of walked through like what this, um, attribute is. I, I'm curious, like, let me tell you, let me yeah. tell you, let me tell you the other thing though, about this, John, I don't mean to interrupt, but no, you're good. So you're, you're kind of asking for an intro kind of the other yeah. thing, I, the other thing I didn't mention was there was a, there was two, kind of two parts to this. One was the part with my kids. The other one was uh, this. I'm a person of faith, and um, so 
and, and I'm a person of, of Christian faith. Yep. And, and so um, if you if you look in the Old Testament in Genesis, you know, the creation of man account, you know, God creates man and um, a few verses into it, you know, first he reminds him, you know, we're created in his image uh, to be like him. That's our that's God's ultimate intention for mm-hmm. us. You know, and here's here's a woman, uh, you know, and he says, go have babies and procreate and fill the earth. But but the first kind of directional thing he said, the very first directional thing he said really was. And nobody talks about this and it blows my mind. I mean, because if you believe the creation story and you believe, you know, in God, you'd, you'd want to know, God, what was his instructions to, to after he creates the universe and then plants man and woman here? What did he tell them? And, and I just don't think we give enough thought to it. And he said, now. Here's all this universe I've created. Go subdue it and take dominion of every living thing. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the word dominion, it's a, a word which means to take authority over, to take control of, to take stewardship of, gotcha. to manage. And, and really what he's saying is this. Let's see what you got. He said, he said go take this over and take charge. And, you know, one of my favorite um, kind of mantras of the Navy SEALs that I, I love is they say amongst themselves when they parachute into some place that's in utter chaos and, and some war-torn area or whatever, and they all remind each other, hey, we're not here to survive this. We're here to take control of this. Mm. And uh, it's an offensive posture. Mm. It's not a defensive posture. It's like, God didn't say to mankind, hey, I created all this. Now I'm planting you in here. Hey, I hope you enjoy it. Hope it goes okay for you. Uh, good luck. There was nothing passive about his direction. It, it, was, it was a very directive, purposeful uh, command for us to steward it. And, uh, and I feel like we, we look, many people don't have that approach at all in their life. They're living their life kind of like life's happening to them. Mm-hmm. Unintentionally, they're becoming victims. They're like getting, getting up every day saying, I hope today goes okay. I, I hope things work out for you. I hope, you know, instead of asking the question, hey, are you taking dominion of your life? You know, are you purposefully living your life? Right? And there's a That's difference. Right. It's a difference. And I feel like one of the biggest uh, opportunities we have in our society is to have that conversation with people and say, and so that kind of goes back to what I said earlier, we want to create the freedom for people to be able to think about that. Man. Yeah. I think that's, you know, it's, it's interesting like that. So if, if the, you know, the origin story of this podcast was that I led a, um, I taught like a little summer school kind of class called developing a philosophy of work. And it was with um, some kind of missional missionary type people, like in a Christian faith setting. And so we, we utilize that same text actually in Genesis um, as like part of a jump off. I mean, also like I wanted to make a point to say work was pre-fall. I wanted to, you know, there's a lot of things there I wanted to look at, right? Like there was a gift, not curse or whatever, Absolutely. but but at some level, this because, because at some level, what you're saying is like this, this word, this control kind of thing is, is, and to, to this day, what I want to say to people, like, you know, we want to say, oh, this is what's wrong going on in our city. I'm like, cool. There's needs around us. Take responsibility. Just take some responsibility for it or take, 
take action, like do something about it then. Like, cause, cause at some level, and I think you, it was well said, it's like, um, you know, where is the, the kind of like the locus of control? Like, what yep. is the thing that we have And it? You know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of like Victor Frankel and like yep. the man's search for meaning, you know, he talks a lot about like that, that li- even when you're locked in a cage and every human freedom has been stripped from you, that like last bastion of human freedom that cannot be taken away is how you will respond. Like that responsibility can never be stripped of a human. It is like the human freedom that is uh, at, in, in you at every point of the way. So back to my definition of poverty is like, I actually do think poverty is the stripping of human freedom. The gift of God from that story is freedom, human freedom. Like you're made in the image of a creator, be creative. You're given, you're given the mandate to take responsibility and to like do the work. Uh, and you're given work to be done as a gift. And then, and then as we, and then what sin kind of in the narrative does is strip them of their ability to execute or to do the thing. And that's what, at some level, what poverty does is it takes us captive, right? Whether it's addiction, whether it's material poverty, whether it's, you know, all of the kind of versions and iterations that we run into and it, it locks us in a cage and actually moves our, even, you know, it is partly mindset, but it is like, it takes, puts us in a place where like control, like it, like you said, like it's, we think things are, life is happening to us. It's yes. things from outside of us. And at some level, there are things beyond your control. I mean, that is, Absolutely. this is like what, why, uh, what, what is it? The, why I love, love, love the 12 step wisdom of like, even they use that old Niebuhr prayers, like, God, give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change because acceptance is something within my ability. And then to change the courage to change the things that I can. Yes. And then what the wisdom to know the difference between those, sometimes it's not crystal clear, but at the same time, there is so much that is within our, within our control, like our perspective on things, right. Which I know is a big part of the first section of your book. You talk a lot about uh, perspective, like, like how you see things. And so like, it's like, that is actually like how you frame this reality um, is, is kind of up to you. I mean, I remember, um, I want to say it was, um, Campbell, Joseph Campbell, like an interview that he was doing. And, um, someone said like, I forget exactly, but he's like, forget exactly the thing. But I remember him saying like that you can change the experience of a fall. Like when you're falling, the experience of falling can be changed by converting it to a leap. Hmm. Like here. Right. And a lot of that has to do with the, like, it's like choosing that thing because that actually is within your capacity. But anyway, I know like, as we kind of walk through this, I'm like intrigued by this, like Genesis piece of this and how it like ties in with this same question I've been chewing on all along. At some level, I do feel like the work ethic as such as I'm trying to explore it is really closely related to this gameness attribute right that the charge to take responsibility to recognize what is it within your control but i know so the first section of this book you talk a lot about perspective i'd love to like hear you kind of yeah. like introduce so, this concept a bit so so yeah the first section is is um what i call a never quit mindset and and the reason i started mm-hmm. with that is um you know from the time i mean i did you have anything to do with getting to earth john uh 
No. Okay. Good. Well, I always like to ask people anytime just, I go speak someplace, in. and I, I still have never found anybody that had anything to do with getting here. And, but it's kind of weird. We're also smart and clever and creative and 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 inventive. And but in it is interesting. No matter what we can create and invent once we get here, and all the things we do, nobody had anything to do with getting to Earth. And not only that, none of the identifying characteristics on our driver's license did we have any any say so over. You know our our genetic code, or you know how tall we're going to be, color of our eyes, color of our hair, whether we have hair or not. Mm -hmm. uh, our our family we're going to be born to. If we get a family, if we're going to be physically whole or not, mentally whole or not, socioeconomic zip code, not, nothing. So from the time we're born, and until we're probably nineteen or twenty, mm -hmm. life's happening to us. Yeah. Right. So if from the time you're a little kid, life is happening to you. So uh, you're a reactor, really because you chose nothing, okay? And so while that's happening to you, unconsciously, for the most part, you're beginning to formulate uh, things like your own value system, your self-perception, your worldview, uh, your attitudes about things. Uh, and, and then out of that worldview uh, and our value construct that we start to create, that begins to dictate actions and we begin to act that out ourselves. So unless you come to the point in your life, say around 19 or 20 or whenever it happens, some people never do. You kind of draw the line and say, wow, uh, my belief system, uh, my value construct, my attitude about authority, my attitude about work, my attitude about mm -hmm. money, my attitude about sex, my attitude about God. When I come to think about it, it was it's all a reactionary thought formation based on things that happened to me. And now I've, I've kind of adopted that. So we're really we start living our life in a reactionary mode. So. The next chapter, of course, is resoluteness to a purpose. And what my what I want to do is realize that no matter where you are, when you start reading this book, you're probably living out some sort of faulty um, worldview or belief system or construct that is reactionary because you were raised a certain way. Uh, and maybe by the time you read this book, you've already come to that crossroads of uh, in your life. To say, okay, now wait a minute, I'm kind of being pushed around in my life with whatever happened behind me. Mm -hmm. I haven't really stopped to say, wait, uh, wh what, what do I want to become out there? What is my future vision for my life? What is my purpose in my life? What's the rest of that canvas of that? And be drawn toward that purposefully. And am I doing things today that would, that would help me land there? But mm -hmm. while you're in this state of living, never quit mindset, uh, you're going to, even after you make that shift to purpose, Life's still going to keep happening to you. And as I point out in the book, life is uncertain, yep. un unfair, and oftentimes unpleasant. And so in the midst of all that, you've got to decide, are you going to let your life be determined and defined by things happening to you? Or are you going to face the fact that, yes, things out of your control are going to happen to you. But as you just pointed out, and I talk about Viktor Frankl in my book, actually, yep. that that. Yeah, no, I, I, I do have control over how I react and respond to whatever happens to me. And one of the, my favorite stories that I used in this first section on uh, perspective is I was visiting a friend of mine and his wife. He's an old retired political attorney, and they moved to uh, Vermont after they left D.C. in their retirement, had a Christmas tree farm and an apple orchard kind of for their retirement gig. And I broke my leg skiing my first day there. I was with him for several weeks. And every meal and in between meals, I found myself re returning to their fridge, drinking way too much of their, you know, apple cider that they that they made. They always had a big jug of it. 
And it was like the nectar of the gods. And one day I said to him, <laughs> I said, I got to quit drinking this. But I, I said, I just have always been curious. Apple cider is so amazing. And I said, what's the process for selecting? Like, there's got to be some selection process to pick the perfect apples to make cider with. Because you couldn't just use any apple to make mm. cider. It's so delicious. And he looked at me, kind of cocked his head and laughed. And he said, wow, you don't have a clue how cider is made, do you? And I said, <laughs> no. I, I, he said, well, it's really funny because it's exactly the opposite. We don't pick the perfect apples. Cider's made from all the bruised and damaged apples. To rejects, yeah. Yeah. I said, what do, what do you mean? And he said, well, when apples get knocked off the tree and fall on the ground and bruise, or the pickers hit them with their equipment or, or storm knocks them down, you know, they either lay there and rot because they couldn't make it to the store shelf as a shiny, perfect apple. Yeah. Or we pick them up and we put them in a cider press and we make cider. So this, this elevating your perspective means, uh, okay, I'm in adversity. This happened. Uh, it wasn't the plan. I was supposed to be one of those shiny, perfect apples with no bruises on the store shelf. Well, is your goal still to get to the store? Yeah. Well, there's another way you can go. There are detours to our dreams. And, and so it's, being, it's, it's realizing that, you know, keep your perspective and say, wait, I can, I can make cider out of this. Mm-hmm. And in, li- in life, because we are fallen people and we live in a fallen world, whether you have a, a, a Judeo-Christian viewpoint or not, nobody would deny that we live in a world where there's plenty of evil and fault and we're yeah, part of it. That's right. So, so you got to come to the point where you ask yourself, you know, you live in this imperfect world and you're imperfect. You know, what's your mindset going to be? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's really important. Well, you know, and, and I, I don't remember what we talked about last time, but it doesn't matter if we repeat a little bit, but I, I, (laughs) I, and, and for those that have listened to this show, I probably shared this a bit of my own story, but like when I was, you know, 17, this is a huge part of the shaping of my own story. When I was 17, I was in a head on car accident that tell you about this already. So I, I went through the windshield and I broke every single bone in my face. It was actually on Halloween night. I was driving, um, and so this is all metal plating, fake teeth. And I was on a tracheotomy for uh, a, a good while. I spent a long wow. time in the hospital. Uh, wow. I had my, all my intestines, kind of the steering wheel hit me in the gut. So like I had to have my spleen taken out and tuss- a bunch of intestines taken out, put back together, feet rot in my femur. My face was completely re-stru- reconstructed. So I have this big ear to ear scar across my head. Um, and and I, I tell you that to say like, uh, almost to illustrate a little bit of this, but like it, it is, it is not, um, it would not be wrong to say that was the worst thing that ever happened to me, the hardest thing I've ever been through. Um, but also I would say it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm. And, and a lot of the work and, and I, and I would challenge those of you listening to think about the worst things that have ever happened to you now, unless they are happening this week, Unless they're happening currently, because it's often very, very hard to have that vantage point in this space. But but like for me, I'd carry this forward. Like when when I go through hard times, I remember like that, like the reject apples, like I'm like, you know, the best things about me, the best things that have ever happened to me are actually some of the worst things that have ever happened to me. If they didn't kill me. And so, and so it helps me now to remember like, Oh, like when I'm going through hard times, I, I, you know, it's, it's weird. Cause like, you want to try to encourage someone going through it and like, Oh, this is going to be great. It's like, yeah, there's like a, a time to have tact or whatever, like when maybe it's the moment, like, uh, to the, to the (laughs) grieving, to the grieving person, not just give it a minute, but like, 
but like, it's, it's, it's a real scenario that, that like, for me, as I look back over my life, I go, that's actually how that's played out. Amen. I mean, that's, that's a beautiful uh, example exactly of what this first section of the book is talking about, about that never quit mindset because a never quit mindset is, is saying exactly what you just said, mm. you know, it, and it's, it's uh, one of the things, uh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is, um, you know, that in Romans eight twenty eight, it's, it, it doesn't say all things are good. Uh, it says that God is committed to working all things together for, for the good. good. Yeah. In, in our life, right. if, if we're committed to, you know, his purposes in our life. And I That's love right. that because it's unapologetically coming out and saying, hey, uh, no, not, not everything's good. But mm -hmm. there's this redemptive element of, of the character of God that is, I think, a seed planted in us as well. That's but, it. you know, if you have a redemptive mindset and you say, OK, yeah, that does suck. Uh, you know, how how can I make cider out of that? How can that how can I find good in this? How can I make good out of that? I tell people often, you know. By the age of five, I had lost my father, mother, and sister in my home, all the things that ought to be permanent in your life. Yep. And as shattering as that was, maybe I think one of the most important lessons a person can learn in their life is there are no sure things, right? There are no sure things. Uh, I learned that at age five. So because of that, a couple of things. One, everything I did have, including a day to live, I treated it like a rare treasure. I've always had this kind of overwhelming sense of gratitude. The other thing I've always had is because I, I realize, even though it's not supposed to happen, it can, you could, you, you could literally lose everything in one day. I have a high sense of urgency. So, you know, my, my kids will tell you, I mean, I, I squeeze every ounce of, out of every day and every opportunity I've got. And I have this incredible sense of gratitude because I, I've lived that. So those are kind of two of the foundational elements in my life mm -hmm. and it came from like you said the worst day of my life yeah because I, I that perspective and so i think that like you said for those that are listening i can't imagine that at some point somebody's going to listen to this and going through a really tough time and like you said this isn't the day to hear something mm -hmm. that sounds rah-rah it may be mm -hmm. your time of grieving but That's i hope right. at some point you can come back and listen and say wow okay uh maybe not today like you yeah. said but at some point how can I find the good thing in this? No, I mean, that's, it. it's so, it's so spot on. And like, I imagine it, hopefully this conversation is evoking that for those listening. Like, it's like, oh, you know, that is true. Like I've learned so much from those things that I've been through. And, you know, as you, as you kind of go from this never quit mindset to this resolute purpose kind of in the book, the, the, and I, 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 uh, I'm, you may have used this. I may have missed this quote. Um, kind of reading through, but the, what came to mind and, and I wonder if it wouldn't be a transition here, but like, you know, Nietzsche, Nietzsche said, um, he who has a why can endure anyhow or something. That's kind of a paraphrase of that. Yeah. But like, it's like, if you know why you're doing this, you can walk through fire, you can walk through hell for it. Right. And it, and it feels like the never quit mindset is really deeply tied to the resolute purpose. Um, and, and like the, so you, I love that you use the, so I love the Alice in Wonderland, um, just in general, <laughs> like Alice in Wonderland is one of my favorites of all time. And you use that little, um, 
like that little uh, moment in there where she's like, would you please tell me which way I need to go from here? <laughs> and of course the Cheshire cat's like, well, it depends where you want to end up. And she says, well, I don't really care where. And he's like, well, then it doesn't matter which way you go or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And it, and it, um, you know what? It's funny, but that scene from that reminds me of, so I, I don't know if you know the book, I'm a huge fan of GK Chesterton. Oh yeah. Um, and he wrote a book called orthodoxy. And in that book, he, um, he's talking about two like schools of thought. Right. Um, but he illustrates them with two men. And he's like, basically one says all roads are great basically. And the other says like all special actions are to be forbidden or basically like choose none of them. And I forget this camps he's thinking, but he's like, everything's great. Everything's not great. And he's like, so you, he's like, well, so you have this, like, uh, it's like a Buddhist man. And uh, I forget the other one, but he's like these two men, they, he's like, they're at a crossroads. One chooses all roads and the other rejects all roads. And well, some things aren't too hard to calculate. They stand at the crossroads. Um, and there is this, like, I don't know, that just resonated with me, but also back to the, like, if you don't care where you end up, it doesn't matter which way you go. But like when you were talking about like you go through life and it's happening to you. And as you become an adult, you have to, you build up some values and beliefs and actually the quite that you're the recognition that you are becoming something. And with each choice that you make, you're almost like making investment in that thing that you're becoming. And as you kind of come to this place where you're like, Oh, you should probably aim. Right. And then, and then as we talk about people that have found real purpose that they're willing to die for, like this, this, like, I don't know, this place of purpose, I, I, I guess I just want to invite you to like, speak a little bit about to this, like this call of purpose, especially maybe to those listening that like, this is something they still go. Yeah. I don't know what that is. I don't like, I, I don't know what, what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, there's people yeah. use language like vocation or calling or whatever. No, no, no. It's, it's a, it's a very, you know, it's really interesting that you asked that specific question because um, it I, I'm ironically, I, I was, I got a call the other day from a pastor of a fairly large church here in Tampa Bay. And, and I, I was on the treadmill one morning and I, I got this text and he had, he had gotten my number and he said, Hey, I'm so-and-so. He said, I'm reading your book, your new book. I love it. He said, would you be willing to come speak to my staff hmm. about your book? And I, I don't know why, but it just kind of struck me as odd. I'm like, okay i'll do that so i'm going monday morning to speak to nice. 20, his 20 staff members but that's the very thing i'm going to talk about specifically to them because um you know they're on staff of this church so you know their purpose uh is no different than mine as as a follower of christ and that's mm -hmm. you know if, if you're if you read the bible and we we read and we find out that you know god his purpose for all mankind is is uh to, to glorify him Mm -hmm. which is kind of a religious word. Most people are like, yeah, whatever. What, what does that mean? Well, the word glory means the, in the image of or likeness of. So if you go back to Genesis, when we talk, that's mm -hmm. how it started. He created us in his image. We yeah. are the glory. We are the glory of God because we are his exact image. So if you've seen me, you've seen God. So when Jesus came to earth, if you remember, he said to people, hey, if you've seen me, they said, well, what's God like? And Jesus, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So Jesus was the glory of God's glory. You read Hebrews 1.3, it actually says, Jesus Christ is the glory of God's glory, the image of his very being. So as a, as a Christian, uh, for people that are faith-oriented, they're listening to this. Like, so we know what our purpose is. So that's different than what our mission is yeah. or, our, or our calling or our vocation. So that's what I'm going to talk about with these, with these church staffers. And um, 
And so it, it is really important. And, and it's interesting. I wrote this book kind of for every man, every woman to read, mm-hmm. even though, as I say in the beginning, I am a person of faith and I write it through that lens. I, I intentionally, this is not a, and I've already said probably more on this. <laughs> you, on this yeah, as far, but yeah, yeah, that's, and I'll just echo that for the reader. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah, it's, this is not an evangelical book. It's not a proselytizing, it's book. not I, a devotional. I, yeah, yeah, no, no I, definitely I've, not. I've, I've, and I've thank already, you for that, by the yeah, way. <laughs> no, well, and I'm frankly, I'm almost apologetic in my many references already to, to kind of my beliefs. That's not what the book is about. I do write through that lens, but I say at the front of the book, yep. but there is, there's enough in here. I think for people to realize that is my oh, orientation, yeah. but it's a book that anyone can read and benefit from. That's right. But but part of the reason I wrote, you know, and shared a little bit about that is I know my purpose, and it's the most liberating thing in my life. Mm-hmm. And the reason it is, John, is is and it doesn't. I'm not saying that because that everybody's purpose should be mine, like mine. What I'm saying is that be, because of that purpose that I have, which is connected to me struggling as I do, faults and warts and all, I I my my highest agenda and goal every day is in some way to reflect God in my life. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and so because of that, my highest purpose is about who I am as a man uh, and how that manifests itself in my life as a husband, a father, a citizen, a friend. So it's like my, my purpose has nothing to do with my performance per se, like how much money I'm making or how big of a, a job or title I've got. It's very liberating because you know, my kids would come to me and say, you know, dad, what do you think I'd be good at? What do you think I should study when I get ready to college? What do you think I should do? And I would always say this to them. I say, look, you know, you can do all kinds of things, but the first thing I want you to know is that the most important thing in your life is that God is, is not as interested in what you're doing or where you're doing it as he is and who you are mm. at, at, while you're doing whatever you're doing and wherever you're doing it. And that's liberating because, Oh, wow. I, I don't have to perform or do anything to please a bunch of people or reach some certain level of whatever. It's like, my goal is real. I could be in prison. It would make it like Victor Frankl. Victor Frankl really discovered his highest purpose and his calling while he's uh, in prison as a persecuted Jew in a Nazi prison camp. Uh, So purpose really is not defined by vocation or calling gifts and talents and all that. Both are important though. And, the reason I talk about it the way I do in the book is I, I talk about calling and vision and, and mission in your life. And I mentioned purpose because some people are ready for that. Some people mm. aren't. Uh, and, you know, it's still important to identify your calling, your talents, your gifts, your passions, uh, whether you've discovered an ultimate higher purpose or not. Uh, you know, I have. I find it very liberating. It kind of is. It's my navigator, if you will, and, and my motivator in my life. But apart from that, I think it's important for everybody within that context to say, okay, but what's my personal mission? Kind of how am I going to manifest my, in my life, um, you know, what my calling is. And my mission is actually to advance the potential and purpose of others. Mm. Well, well, it really doesn't matter what I do vocationally to do that. How I came to that for me was saying, hey, what do I really care most about and what am I good at? And try to put those two things together, much like you've done in your own life. You know, what do you care most about? What are you pretty good at? And mm-hmm. you put those two together and that's created your quote unquote vocation. Yep. Uh, beyond that, yes, I, I know you also have a higher purpose, but but that's it's intrinsic. It wouldn't matter if you were working at pumping gas at a gas station, mowing lawns, right. 
or what you're doing now, that yeah. purpose doesn't change. Transcends those circumstances or details. And, and, so those... it, and here's the other part of it, and I'll finish with this on this purpose thing. The reason purpose is, is important is purpose is your why, like you said earlier. And it's 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 like um, I, I wrote two quotes down when I was about 20 years old, 21 years old in my journal. And they stuck with me all these years, but they both have to do with this. And one of them said, um, happy, and, it, and these are in my book, happier those who dream dreams and are willing to pay the price to make them come true. Mm-hmm. Your, your purpose or your vision or your calling, the reason I, the subtitle of that chapter is managing your potential is because potential is something that hadn't been done yet. It is that canvas you haven't painted on. It is what's possible out there. Mm-hmm. It's something, it's it's that space in your life out there where you could make a difference. You could make an impact that you haven't yet, but you could. It's that person you could become. You may not be today. You could. Uh, it's the impact you could make. So when you're looking forward, that motivates you. It gives you energy. It It drives you. And it's also future focused, you know, versus a person without purpose is really spending most of their time dwelling on the past. Serene Kierkegaard said, for life to be understood, it must be seen backwards. In retrospect, yeah. Yeah, but to be lived, it must be lived forward. And so, you know, it's like we either get defined by our past and drag that past around in our present and mm-hmm. get kind of get pushed around with it, or we stop at some point and say, okay, what, what am I going to aspire toward? And what I've found in my life is the people that are the most fulfilled, happiest, joyful, um, accomplished, and, and typically most uh, you know, profitable are people that are, are living this forward-focused, future-focused, purpose-driven life, they, and they, they're moving toward an aspiration or a goal. And what I'm saying is it's the other half of that, that quote. Dreaming is one thing. But the happy, it says happier those who dream the dream and are willing to pay the price to make it come true. The other it, verse, the other yep. quote I, that I put in my book is, is uh, life without dreams is a broken wing, like a broken wing bird that cannot fly. And so it's, it, it gets people uh, an engine, if you will, for your life. And, and uh, that momentum is very important. And you may shift gears and transition and change and have detours and all that. But you got to, I think it's important to find out what your driver is. Mm. You know, as you were talking about that, that um, kind of dream, say it again, dream, dreams, and then. Yeah, happy, happier that, you know, you talk about, I want my kids to be happy, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I, I just I always told them, happiness comes, is, is the people that are the happiest are those that, are, that dream dreams, they have a vision for their life, mm-hmm. and they're willing to pay the price to make them come true. You know, one, one of the, I love this saying, and and um, and I know you've heard it. Uh, well, I have a little I have a little plaque that I've carried around for thirty something years, and I always keep it on my mantle. And it says, "Only those who see the invisible will do the impossible." That's really good. I well, it's funny that quote stuck with you for so long. The um, there was something I heard. I want to say it was like in a sermon or something when I was a lot younger, um, and probably early kind of right after I had started, uh, I had come to faith, which was like early or mid college, early college. Um, but I probably went to this little church or something, but I remember 
this this sentence for some reason, and I may have contorted it over the years, but it was something like, um, pray about it, like like that dream, like the thing that you're working toward, like pray for it, pray about it, like it is completely up to God. And then work at it like there is no God. As if it's completely up to you. It's completely up to you. And then yep. hopefully somewhere in the middle, like that's how we move. That's how we proceed. And it, man, that stuck with me for, I still echo that to myself. Like, yeah, ask God for that, but then work at it. Like you were on your own out here. Well, you get, um, trans, you get transformed through that process. And it's actually mm-hmm. uh, in that headwind and that adversity and resistance, uh, the stuff that caused you to pray because you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're soliciting some, you know, uh, divine help on this matter. So, you know, right. whatever, whatever is you're up against or whatever it is you're trying to accomplish, uh, you know, you're, you're making appeals, you know, to God to help you. Yeah. Well, but yet keep grinding. And cause it's in the process of you doing your work in the midst of that, where happiness comes from. And, and, in that whole process is it's, you know, it, it's, um, I hope people will please uh, forgive us for indulging so many references uh, to our, our, uh, you know, our spiritual part of our lives. And, you know, it's all good, uh, man. It's, it's, it happens. It happens here. You know, but, but, but one of my favorite verses in the Bible is without a vision, the people shall perish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's a very powerful verse because if you look at the word, uh, the opposite of the word perish, if you look it up, is to thrive. Mm-hmm. So if you have a vision for your life, because without a vision, you perish. So if you look up the definition of perish, it means to begin to atrophy, mm-hmm. you know, and you begin to dissolve, rot, eventually to, to die. I mean, it's like the beginning of death. So, so in other words, if you don't have a vision for your life, it's like something out there that yet doesn't exist, okay? Yep. It's only in your mind to motivate and drive you forward it says you begin to atrophy and die. Now think about that. Look how many people are depressed and the rise of depression in our society, and the rise of suicide and the rise of OD and the rise of, of, of all of that. And you're like, wow, that's kind of a form of atrophy of society and decay and death. And, and, and then, but if you talk with them, I, you know, I'll tell you this. And then the, well, I'm going to say this, the opposite of the word perishes to thrive. So then people with a vision for their life thrive. And it's like they're like overflowing uh, growth, abundance, fullness. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. One of the one of the things that have I was a, as a counselor and did private practice for over ten years, and I of course counseled in clinical settings and in uh, facilities for many years before I became you know in a leadership role. So I've counseled thousands of people, and when I got out of graduate school, and I talk about this in my book a little bit, they give you these forms that are called intake form so everybody that comes Mm -hmm. for counseling you mail them to them say hey before you come see me fill out this intake form bring it with you well most people don't fill it out we fill it out the first session or two but one out of us on my way home and i and i it just hit me for some reason like wow i'm so tired of these intake forms all the questions are well how are you feeling what feelings was it that prompted you to seek out counseling what are the precipitating factors that brought you to counseling describe the pain that you're feeling uh you know and, and, and it, tell me about your past. Uh, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about your, you know, and we would talk and talk and talk about, you know, they're, they're, how, and I'm not minimizing this, but how much frustration they were having with their spouse or their parents didn't treat them right or they, their, their boss is, 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 you know, awful or 
or nothing's ever worked out for them. It was just all this past stuff. And I'm not minimizing the pain, but I got to the point where I was like, you know what? We don't ever talk about where you want to go. We don't, there's no question in my intake form that says, Hey, John, thanks for sharing all that. It's very important for me to understand your background, your past history. If you have any mental health issues, my, your childhood issues, your family of origin issues, any trauma you've gone through, any medications, blah, blah, blah. I need to know all that. It's critical. Yeah. I get that. But there were no questions on my form that said, John, could you tell me this? What is your, have you ever thought about what your life purpose is? Hmm. Have you ever you know, thought what, about like, what, what outcomes do you, do you yeah, want? What yeah. do you and, want and, to aim at? Well, and there's no question that says, John, I know this is how you are feeling. How would you like to feel? <laughs> and, I'm, and more importantly, John, let me ask you this. What would you be willing to do to create those feelings in your life? And I started, yeah. I changed my intake forms. But I got to tell you, when I started asking people uh, those questions, it, it, it freaked people out. Some people were like speechless. Some people, they stammer around like, what, what do you mean what my purpose is? I, I didn't come here to talk about my life purpose. I came to talk to you about all this pain. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I know and we're going to, but what I want to know is, are you interested in moving beyond it? And I, had, I, I can't tell you how many times I would have people smile and nod and say, yeah, I understand how important that is. Yes. And, I, and then all of a sudden, well, you know, I think, I think I've, we've, I've, I've accomplished what I came to counseling for. It's uncomfortable to talk mm. about that. It's, a, it's difficult. People aren't used to talking about, because then you got to do the second part of that equation. Happier those who dream dreams are willing to pay the price. Make them true. And you got to shift from having kind of a victim mindset to saying, okay, I'm going to take dominion of my life. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not minimizing that bad things have happened. It's not minimizing that really bad things are going on right now. Right. It's not minimizing life's unfair and unpleasant. But what I want to do is encourage people. And I wanted to encourage my kids when I wrote this book. Life sucks sometimes. Life yeah. is ugly sometimes. Life is tough sometimes mm -hmm. and most times. And so how are you going to be prepared to experience that? And so the most important thing, once you recognize you got to have an ever quit mindset, so you're, you're staying in the game, you got to say, okay, now that you're in the game, what's your purpose going to be in the game? Where, what is going to be the vision for your life? Let me, let me read this quote out of my book, if you don't mind. Is that okay? Please. No, yeah, absolutely. I, I, kinda, I was kind of stuck writing my book. You know, we haven't talked about this much, but writing a book's the hardest thing I've ever done, dude. I mean, uh, it, I, I would write this and I'd just get stuck and, and I'd be like, why am I writing this? It's, it's, this is so stupid. And, and you know, who's going to read this? And, and there's probably a lot better things written out there. And one day I was in one of those stuck modes and like saying, this is silly. This is, this is vain. I mean, why am I writing this book? And I was reading a book at the same time called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Heard great things about it. Oh, my gosh. Listen to this. I'm going to tell you, man, if I, if I could tell you, burn this book, all of it except page 167, and, um, and there's one other quote I was going to share with you. Um, yeah, here it is. You can burn the book, but save page 70 and page 167, and here's why. Here's a quote by Stephen Pressfield from his book, The War of Art. Th to me, I think it's one of the most powerful things I've ever read, but it's really to what you're talking about here with, with purpose and taking responsibility for your life. He says, um, the question, uh, he says that um, in the end, the question can only be answered by action. Do it or don't do it. 
It may help to think of it this way. If you were meant to cure cancer or write a symphony or crack cold fusion and you don't do it, you not only hurt yourself, even destroy yourself, you hurt your children, you hurt me, you hurt the planet. You shame the angels who watch over you and you spite the Almighty who created you and only you with your unique gifts for the sole purpose of nudging the human race one millimeter further along its path back to God. Your work is not a selfish act or bid for attention on your part. It's a gift to the world and being in it. Don't cheat us of your contribution. Give us what you've got. So what have you got to give? Mm. And I read that and I said, God, please forgive me for my little pity party because mm -hmm. because because this is my little piece to give. The other part that I, I want to share is uh, former Navy SEAL David Goggins. Said, I love Goggins, man. Yeah, that book uh, Can't Hurt Me is so yeah, insane. Yeah. Isn't that great? He, he, I love this quote, though, man. And, and if I could sum up this whole book, it would be this quote of the one I just read. But this quote, you are in danger of living a life so comfortable and soft that you will die without realizing your true potential. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want to be that person. Right. Yeah. And so that's that's why I told my kids, I want you to read this book. I said, because you're at risk of the same thing. You're at risk of dying without realizing your potential. Can you imagine anything really better in our society, John, than every human being? I know this sounds very Pollyannish, very, very maybe silly to some people. But can you think of anything better on this earth than every human being living their life to their fullest potential? Can you imagine the possibilities? every human being. And that's what this book is for. It's to encourage and inspire and motivate and guide people to live their life to the fullest potential, to go take dominion of their life in spite of everything they're going to face. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, especially because of everything they're going to face, a matter of fact, go harvest everything you're going to face and redeem it, you know, and make yep. it and make something good out of it. You've got the power to do that. That's it, to me, it's a very liberating thing. It's it the is. most, it's the most freeing thing. Yeah. That's what the game this is. Man, so well said. I am I am curious about something um, as we talk about all this. So like, you know, and by the way, just on what you just said, the full potential piece, like I, you know, I've asked all the guests that have come on this show. I've tried to ask everybody about their definition of success. You probably remember me asking you about that when we talked yep. three years ago. I do remember um, that. And, and, and I've tried to ask everybody and, you know, just like compiling those responses. Um, but for me personally, I have always thought about it as like, I don't know, I, the image of a sponge comes to mind, but like squeezing it until every last, yeah. like just to find out what else is in the tank, like what's in there is like, what is success is like to find out what I'm capable of, to find out like what I can actually do or accomplish or contribute, like to, to get every last bit of potential, like realized in some real way. Um, and just to say that, just to share, kind of echo what you had just said, but I want to ask you a question a little bit about, so, so this is obviously a, what would you call gameness, a quality a attribute, uh, uh, like something, are those fair words for, yeah, yeah, I, okay. would, I, I, I would, I would, that's what I would call it. I, I would call gameness, uh, really it's, it's, uh. What did you say? A, a quality? Yeah, it's, it's quality a, it's, attribute. It's, yeah, posture. It's, yeah, it's an attribute. It's uh, an attribute. It's it's really kind of also an approach to life. 
it's an approach. Uh, a philosophy of, of li- the way you live. Uh, it, it doesn't mean it's your your purpose, but it's a it's a philosophy or a way of yep. of living. All right. So so here's my that's great. So here's my question about that because. I, this deeply resonates with me. I think you knew that like, even when you were first working on this and then talking to me about it, like, I think you're really going to dig this. I'm like, yeah, this is right <laughs> up, right up my alley. Right. Yep. Um, and so I love it. Um, I also recognize that um, there are, let's say even between you and I, there are temperamental features of our DNA, even our personality yeah. um, like the pit bull. Right. Yeah. That, 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 that our game at like, like, like that was probably, you know, this is probably more true of me today than maybe when I was a kid, but there was always something like this in me. And like you said, we have five children, right? Yep. Um, you've watched them grow up and you probably see some diversity in those kids, yep. even yep. though they're all from the same household and the whatever, but it's like, yes, you know, some of them are more open than others. Some of them are more, you know, I, I, I like, I really like the, uh, I'm you familiar with the big five, like the, 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 the acronym ocean, but these like temperamental scales. So like openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, neuroticism, these are like attributes, let's say of temperament. And, and when I listen to this, I go, I, I, I think it's at least worth saying out loud and asking you about, like, there are some of us that have this, like a certain cloth that we're cut from. I think this is still like an, uh, uh, let's say a good philosophy and approach to be adopted by everybody, right? Like this is good. This is a good, like go and do likewise. Um, but it's also like, I'll just say like harder for some than others. Like I could take my wife as a great example who temperamentally is someone who is more, um, like neurotic on the temperamental scale. Like she's more prone to fear. Um, she sees kind of what's wrong first, like, and it actually is a real gift to have her like as a partner, because I don't see those things. Like, and she's the one that's going to be like, watch out. You're going to step on a snake. Like she's the one that's going to see that. Not me, you know? And like, it's nice to have a partner with a different temperament. So you have that diversity of perspective or whatever. Um, and, and I actually do think she's quite game. She's quite strong. She's, but it isn't temperamentally natural. It's like conditioned over time, almost like through, like, I almost think it's like a product of cognitive behavioral therapy. Like it's like, uh, thinking really hard about your feelings and then acting in contrast with those feelings kind of thing. And, and, um, I guess I wanted to put this back to you as a question mark for those with like temperamental differences. Like, obviously I think like listening to you and I, and even how a pit bull was like, Oh my God, I want to be like a pit bull and have a pit bull. It's like that you came that way, you know? So like, there's a little bit of that that's just in you. Um, and what, you know, for those for whom this isn't um, as natural of a temperamental feature, I, I I guess I just invite you to like speak to the temperamental nature of this yeah. a little bit. Yeah, that's great, man. Um, you know, um, so you, you mentioned, you know, the pit bull. Um, you know, so the thing that's amazing about those dogs, and like I said, I've, I've had one, and we've had one in our, it's the first gift I gave my wife when we were engaged, and we've had one in our home for, for 35 years. That's an amazing gift. Yeah, I hear you what, shouldn't give dogs as gifts, but that's yeah, an amazing what, gift. What, you know, laid it on her chest. She was taking a nap over to mom's house. She Aww. woke up to this little buckskin pit. Well, but, mm. but the most amazing thing about these dogs, what I love is when people come over to the house, and they're like, Oh my gosh, I just love your dog. It's the most affectionate, you know, cuddly, loving, sweet 
dog what kind of dog is what kind it? of dog is it <laughs> because because I, you know we don't cut their ears and spike their ears like some yeah. people do and, yeah. and, and i and i and i love to tell them what's well, american football terrier and they kind of take sit back and go, really you know i'm like yeah, yeah. you know and I'm, I'm sorry i'm going to use another you know biblical picture is there anybody more loving and self-sacrificing and gentle uh than jesus yeah you know uh, let mm -hmm. the children come unto me mm -hmm. uh and yet and yet he's the guy that you know and who and he's forgiving and he tells peter put your sword away you know put the guy's ear back on yet he's the guy that in amazing courage dies on the cross for us right endures um, the worst you know, yeah the, the worst of the worst and uh and and so here's this incredibly loving gentle the most gentle humble sweet and yet he's the gutsiest most fearless mm. so i think a lot of times we have a wrong understanding um what, what it's like the kids, like I said, I start working with these kids on the street and everybody's like, oh, I'm scared of them. Why? It's because you don't know them. And so don't judge those kids. You know, these, these aren't bad kids. And uh, they're, they're, they're the most so tender-hearted, compassionate. Matter of fact, most of them are more tender-hearted and sensitive because they've had to be, because they have to be so aware of themselves. But it's the same way with these dogs. They're incredibly, so my point is, these principles, and it's interesting you asked the question because as I wrote the book, I had to ask myself, you know, did gameness really capture uh, the attributes that everyone, it, it, this is almost to me like a survivor manual, only I don't like the word survivor, so a thriving, sure. thriving manual, if you will. Yep. Any, any human being that lives on this earth will face adversity that will demand something of them. Would you agree yep. with that? Yeah. Okay. I don't care if it's your wife's temperament or your temperament. Every one of us will live this on this earth every day and face adversity that demands something of us. Mm -hmm. and, and so these attributes are the required attributes to navigate adversity in a proactive way that allows you to grow strength through the adversity, get better because of the adversity. Mm -hmm. And it requires you to have a purpose, to have the momentum in your life to propel you through the headwinds that you're going to face and give you an anchor and a compass for your life. So it's really what I would call temperament neutral. Mm. Um, I am more of a fiery personality. Yeah. I'll tell you right now, the stronger person in my home is my wife than me. My mm. wife says more in her silence than I do in a thousand words. Mm -hmm. Okay. And she, she's a rock. Uh, very, very quiet, very shy socially, uh, not very verbal. Um, I mean, a rock. Mm -hmm. So... So I think that's real important for our kids and for your listeners when they're thinking about this book. This isn't about changing your temperament. This isn't about changing your personality. It's not about trying to change any of that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It, it really is temperament neutral. These are attributes that I promise you in your life. Let me ask you this. The last section of the book is the will required to act beyond your feelings. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of the things William James said that I always loved, he says, I don't sing because I'm happy. I'm happy because I sing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, in our in our in our world, one of our biggest challenges, I feel like in our society is that we seek too often to feel ourselves to new ways of acting instead of acting ourselves to new ways of feeling. That's right. The greatest liberation comes when you realize, oh, wow, I can do some things that will make me feel differently than I do. But in our society, once again, much like those counseling sessions, people want to talk about how they feel. Feelings are important. I get that. But you have control 
over how you feel by what you do. I never feel like going to the gym. Never. Right. But you know, dopamine and endorphins aren't free. I've got to, I've got to <laughs> right, go, right, I've got to, right. you know, I got to go to the gym, sweat, put myself through the, the work. When I leave, I feel like I just took a drug. That's it's right. Called, it's called endorphins. It's called dopamine. Mm -hmm. It's like a high. I feel fantastic. But I acted myself to those new ways of feeling. That's right. And so in our society, though, we want to self-medicate. We want to take pills for that. We we want to do whatever it takes to make us feel good, including say the things to people and hear the things said to us that at the moment make us feel good. Yeah. And it's a poison because in our society and in, in our own lives, it's so important that we stop seeking to feel good first and instead start seeking to do our best thing first and 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 earn the feelings that come with it. Happier those who dream dreams yep. and are willing to pay the price to make them come true. That mm. statement's true of every human being. I don't care what your temperament. You That's will right. never be you'll never be happy. I'll, I'll just say this. The happiest people I've ever known, the most fulfilled people and the most accomplished people ever are people that are on the path, I'll put it that way, to living their life to their fullest potential, which means they've identified their calling, their vision for their life, their purpose at some level, and being driven by that in a way that circumstances can't stop it. They've adopted a never quit mindset. No matter what's going on in their life, they're going to hang with it until they find a way to redeem it and find the good in it mm. and get stronger in it and get better because of it. They have quit being intimidated by problems and trying to avoid problems and waking up every day saying, God, I hope today goes okay. I don't care if today goes okay. I'm going to go okay. Mm -hmm. that's that's the point i'm going that's okay it. you know that's get it. get up with an attitude of you know i'm about to make today good i'm about to make today better i'm a dominion taker you know i'm that's not right. a, i'm not a person that's waiting for life to happen to me life's gonna happen to me but i can tell you right now no matter what happens i'm gonna find some good in it yeah and that, that gives me power and then the last thing is acting you've got to have the will required to act beyond your feelings it's called discipline that's and right. it's and, and it, discipline is liberating man uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Jocko Willink. Yeah, oh you know, yeah. And and he says, what does he say all the time? Discipline is freedom. Discipline is freedom. And and it's like it's just the truth. It's uh, sounds very simplistic, but most many people, I'm not going to say most, many people are missing out on their opportunities because of that. Yeah. And I, I told my kids, I said, you know, every day when you get up, it's gonna you got to get up against your feelings. And go to work. You got to get up and make that bed. You got to get up and eat vegetables, not just candy. You got to get mm -hmm. up and do work. You got you got to get up and sweat. You know, that's. But if you do that, wow, that's right. And you and if you learn to do that, and every time you do that, you get stronger and better at doing. It. And you get to the point that it's like, oh golly, I just for a split second I started to dread that, and then I got really pissed off and fired up because when I start to dread something, that means I almost talked myself out of doing that best thing. And I'm not talking myself out of that. I'm going to go do that hard thing. Mm -hmm. That really, it sounds dramatic maybe to some people, but it just is that simple. I mean, and it's, so I, I, I try to boil it down to something that's a very simple formula. Uh, and life's not simple, but this is a game plan, a mindset, a formula, if you want to call it that, a, a way that I think is temperament neutral. Yep. Um, I, I, I really believe this. I believe everything I wrote in this book when I wrote it, read it, read it, what my judge of the book was when I finished and I said, okay, it's ready to print was, is anything in this book undeniable? 
That's why I didn't make it a book about my faith or, you know, trying to convince people to be like me. I can't find anything in this book. You may not like how it feels when you read it. Mm. It's too, maybe it feels too direct to you or whatever. But I don't think anyone can read this book and say, you know what? I can't find anything in there that I wouldn't say it's undeniably true. That's right. For, for any human being. Mm-hmm. So that was that was kind of my litmus test before I said it's ready to go to print. Man, I'm I'm so grateful for um, this work that you did and for your just constant championing of what is really some core attribute of the human spirit, you know, that um and and so for those listening that are even fired up a little bit as we're as you're kind of talking through this, like where where can they get the book? Where can uh uh yeah, like point yeah. us to point point yeah. everyone to where they can find it, get it. I'm thrilled to do that. And um and so uh the website for the book, you can go directly there. It's gameness leadership dot com and it's spelled just like it sounds g-a-m-e-n-e-s-s gameness uh, leadership.com when you go to the website you can download a couple of chapters for free the introduction in the first chapter i think it is so you can check those out for free um there's a little bit more information about about me on there if you want to know anything more about me uh, you can also go to amazon and buy the book uh, a lot of people just do that because it's easier yeah uh, but uh and then you, there's other ways you can get it too but those are some some pretty good ones if you're interested in me coming to speak uh at your organization um you know i'm happy to to do that there's a media kit on the website too you can get some information more about me like that there's a way to reach me on there and um uh, you know i really feel like uh, this what this book has been for me you know when i first started working with um uh, families that were experiencing challenges and stuff, John, I, I just wanted to do that directly. And I had a, an old boss that kept trying to get me to take on a leadership role in our organization. And I kept saying, oh, you're nuts. I would never not want to work directly with these families. I don't want to be in an office someplace. And, and eventually I did take that step. I had two kids, another one on the way. I needed the money. And I thought, I'm going to try that. He keeps, he keeps telling me I'm a, I'm a leader. I'm like, I, I said, I, you know, I don't think I am, but I'm going to try it. Long story short, that was the beginning, you know, 93. Um, and I, here I am, and I've been here at Eckerd 16 years. And, and, uh, and so, you know, it's, it's uh, the reason, that the biggest motivator when I started running programs and then running organizations and running state agencies and running this organization, the, the main reason I got excited about it was that first program that I was running, I, I had a caseload of 12 kids that I worked with and you know, and I, I had some control over the impact that was made on their lives because they were in my caseload. But when I took on the responsibility for the whole program, I got to have a contribution with the rest of the team of making sure all 36 kids on that campus really got all that they needed to succeed. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, through a leadership role, I can make a macro impact. And then I was, well, could you open, could you come run these five programs? And then could you run the state agents? Could you run this national organization? Yeah. But as I said in my career at this point in my life, I began to ask myself in terms of uh, this book really is about stewarding your life. The, re the reason I hope everybody reads this book is I hope it challenges you to look at this, read this book and say, am, am I living my life to its fullest potential? Am I truly stewarding well my life? And as I asked myself that question, as I was writing the book, the thing that really caused me to finish the book was I thought, you know, 
the only other way I can reach more people and impact more people's lives is through a book because mm -hmm. people could be reading my book any place across the world and me not being present physically. Yep. The other night I was on a date with my wife in Tampa at this restaurant that we love. And uh, I got this text from one of our social workers in one of our programs. And it was a text about a young lady who's been going through a real crisis in her life that uh, this social worker had given her a copy of my book. And she'd started reading the book and it was really impacting her and connecting with her and making sense. And she was talking with her and she had said some things that had really helped her from the book. And the social worker, my staff, sent me a text with that message in there. And I was sitting there having dinner with my wife and I pulled up the text and I saw it's from one of our programs. And I said, this is why it's important for me to get this book out. I said, this young lady is getting her life touched and impacted with this book while I'm sitting here having dinner with you. I said, I, and so that's why I'm promoting this book. That's why mm. I appreciate you having me on the podcast. I didn't write this book to make money. If anyone writes me uh, through that website and they want more than downloading those two free chapters and they want a book, all you got to do is contact me. I'll send you a book. If you can't afford a book, uh, by buying the book, it helps me print more. I've, yep. I've, I've already given more away than I've sold. Uh, thankfully I've also sold a lot and it's got a really good response so far, That's but great. my, but my goal is to steward this message to people because I, I really want to see people live their life to their fullest potential. I want to see people say, you know what? I don't know that I really have a dream, but I'm going to get one and I'm going to pay the price to make it come true. I'm going to have a never quit mindset. I'm going to have a fighting spirit. I'm going to develop the will to act in spite of my feelings and I'm going to give it what I've got. I'm going to show the world what I got. And that's what this book is for. So join him with us. I'm about that every day myself. John's about that every day. John's about leading that effort in Tampa Bay. Uh, that's what this is all about. It's Tampa being a city of its full potential. Imagine yeah, that. That's right. You know, that's what it's about. I thought of you many times writing this book. Well, thank you. Thank you, man. I, uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for, for all of this and for your time to talk through this again. I'm just so grateful, uh, for the relationship we've been able to build and knowing you and the work you're doing. Um, guys, I really want to encourage everyone to get a copy of this. Um, it really is good. And Oh, by the way, so this is a podcast, which people listen to. It means you got a lot of audio files, right? And, uh, and we're, uh, we're, we're, we don't have an audio book yet, right? Is one is one in the works? It's, you think? It's it's, it's being uh, it's, it's about to be started. So I would say within the month we'll have audio book. Love it, love it. I know, I know. For so many of us, we've gotten into it's it's very strange how we adapt uh, with technology, and all of a sudden you're now on the move, listening to Bluetooth. But uh, how many books we get through that way? And I'm you really can, looking can, forward to the audio version. You can get it on Kindle, but but uh, but but audio book. Uh, thanks to you, actually, John. For introducing me to your friends uh, yep. at the Sound Studio, that uh, I'm I'm soon to uh, begin doing the readings for it. I wanted to do it in my own voice, uh, so I can connect with readers, Love and it. it's, they have this kind of sense of connecting with me. And uh, I didn't want another voice to do it, and so um, I'm very excited about that. Well, once once that's done, just make sure I have the link and I'll add it. I'll add it to the show notes on this episode. Awesome. Um, but man, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate everything that you've done. Thank you for coming on and sharing. Hey, it's, it's a total honor. I'm humbled that you ask. I, I love what you do in our city and uh, respect who you are. And it's truly a joy and an honor to get to be with you. Appreciate you, dude.